Orban has very quickly understood this logic and has said, well, if if you introduce a functioning rule of law mechanism, I'm going to block this whole Corona package. So he's basically blackmailing the member states that are most touched by Corona. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. The voice you just heard at the beginning belongs to Daniel Freund, who is our guest for today's episode. Daniel is a member of the European Parliament for the German Green Party and thereby also the first elected politician that we ever had on the podcast. He is a member of several committees in the European Parliament, for example the Committee on Budgetary Control and the Committee on Constitutional Affairs. Daniel also founded a multipartisan group working on anti-corruption related topics and we are very excited to welcome him on the podcast. This episode also features another first. It is the first time that you will hear Jonathan's voice as an interviewer. As you might have read on our social media channels, Jonathan has been a member of the Kickback team for quite some time now, but up until now he has been working mostly in the background. Together, Jonathan and I conducted the interview with Daniel a few weeks ago. This episode focuses on the rule of law mechanism in the European Union that has been prominently featured in the news recently. Daniel will explain what the rule of law mechanism is, what its main objectives are and what challenges it faces. He will also take us backstage to the inner working of the European Parliament. As many of you are not located within the EU, we certainly do not assume that you know exactly how the political system works. And don't worry, unfortunately, many of us Europeans don't understand it neither. Therefore, I will give you a very brief rundown. Every five years, all eligible voters in all 27 member states elect the European Parliament, which is located in Strasbourg and in Brussels. The last election took place in 2019, so last year, and this was also the election where Daniel was elected a member of parliament, or short, an MEP. In a nutshell, the European Parliament is one of four key political institutions, and it is also considered the most democratic one because of the elections. The other three are, first, the European Council, which consists of the heads of states of all EU member states. Second, the Council of the European Union, also known as the Council of Ministers, which consists of the respective ministers of all EU member states. And finally, the European Commission, the executive branch of the EU, which consists of 27 commissioners, uh, one from each member state. It is also the only institution in the EU that can propose legislation. For more on the political system of the EU, check out the show notes of this episode. I think this should be enough background information to follow the conversation. Now over to the interview, which Jonathan Kleimpers and I conducted with MEP Daniel Freund. Have fun. Thank you so much, Daniel Freund, for being on the podcast uh, and for finding the time this morning to talk to us. Maybe to start us off, we'd be interested to hear a little bit about your background and especially how you became interested in the topic of corruption. Well, basically, I, I started working for Transparency International uh, a bit over six years ago in the EU office in, in Brussels on everything related to corruption within the 
uh, European Union. And uh, I did that work for, for five years, working mostly on things like lobby transparency, conflicts of interest, uh, the, the whole area of money in politics and, and how the, the political uh, decision making can be corrupted. But obviously I had a, I had a broad look at, at corruption issues across uh, the, the, the European Union and, and beyond uh, during those five years. I used to travel quite a bit uh, for TI and uh, got an idea of, you know, what, what is happening in the rest of the world in, in terms of corruption. And then I ran in the European elections last year and, and got elected from Germany as a Green to the European Parliament. And now I'm basically continuing the same fight for, for more transparency against corruption, but but from from within the European Parliament. So you are still a fairly new member of the Parliament. How was your transition from citizen, from NGO worker to uh, being a MEP in the Parliament? Be before I went to work for TI, I had been in the Parliament as a as an assistant, uh, working for for a member. So so I knew the Parliament reasonably well. And and during those five years as at TI, I mean, part of my job was that of a a lobbyist or advocacy uh, person if if you want so i worked very closely with members of the european parliament to uh, to improve eu legislation on on corruption issues so so i i knew the institution well and uh, so obviously the role of a politician is is different but at least the the inner workings of the of the machine are, are reasonably familiar so so i think uh, the the transitioning in has been has been relatively easy for me I want to ask you about your different roles, because right now you are an elected member of the European Parliament. You are a member of different committees uh, on the Committee of Budgetary Control, Committee on Constitutional Affairs. Uh, you are the co-founder of um, a cross-party group that works against corruption and you're traveling all over all over Europe. Can you give us a little bit of, a, of an inside view in how a, a normal week for you as a parliamentarian looks and how all of these things tie together? I mean, obviously now under under Corona conditions, things are are, are different than they, they used to be before that. But it's it's basically a mix, I'd say, of of the core parliamentary activities, um, which are well, one important activity is of course legislation, right? And and there, I'm I'm currently one of the we call those shadow rapporteurs. But if you want, I'm I'm the green negotiator for Uh, what is called the rule of law conditionality. So, so that's the attempt, uh, and we're, I think we're very close to, to now sealing a deal on this, but that for the first time, we link the paying out of EU money to the respect of, of the rule of law. And that includes the fight against corruption. So if, if we do see in a certain member state, that there is no independence of the judiciary, if there is no more independent media, if, if the fight against corruption is, is being lost, uh, quite frankly, uh, then we would give uh, the commission the possibility to, to basically withhold EU funding from, from that member state until the situation is, is rectified. So the, this legislation, in a way, works that, well, first the commission proposed it, Uh, then the parliament adopted its position on this. That was already before I actually became a member. Uh, but then the file was lying around for a year and a half until finally the council, so the governments of the member states, also took a position on this uh, fairly fairly recently. 
in the meantime, I had become elected and, and, and was the was named the shadow on this file. And then three weeks ago, we started the negotiations between the three institutions to find a compromise between the three different positions. So at the moment, well, yesterday, we sat down for, for, for three hours uh, and I think we're going for a final round uh, to tomorrow where where you basically negotiate uh, with with the negotiation negotiators from from the uh, governments at the moment that's the the german council presidency so basically the german ambassador to the eu is is negotiating this on on behalf of the council uh, then you have the commissioner in charge of the budget uh, commissioner han sitting there and then a whole team of of meps uh, the two main negotiators and then at least one representative per political group uh, sitting there and, and we all try to find a, a workable compromise between the different um, institutions. That's sort of the legislative function that, that, that we have. The second, and, and that's much of what I do in the Budget Control Committee, is, is sort of the the control function of the European Parliament, right? We we are the body that is supposed to control all the other EU institutions and make sure that EU money is is spent responsibly and that when we say, okay, in a law, we want to spend this much money uh, on agricultural subsidies, um, that we then also check, well, is, is the money actually getting there? Is it doing what, what it's supposed to do? So uh, there there is sort of an annual cycle of what's called the discharge, where, where the parliament looks at are all the other institutions operating uh, well, and we make a long list of, of criticisms. And, and then there's a whole process where they get to answer, uh, we get to answer to that, and, and we try uh, over a long procedure to sort of sort out what, whatever ir irregularities, scandals, or whatever we find. And then I'd say, well, those are the two main things I do within the parliament, but then obviously there's a huge amount of work of um, well, selling this back to citizens, right? Uh, talking to journalists, talking to my constituents, uh, talk talking back to the to the party at home of of what we do at the moment what their thinking is on on all the things we do so so there's actually a lot of things uh, that you do in any one day uh, average day uh, at least 12 hours i would say uh, weekends uh, at least under normal non corona conditions are often spent uh, in the constituency talking to citizens uh, being at party congresses and stuff uh, so so it's quite diverse actually what what a day might look like I would like to get into the whole rule of law mechanism a little bit later, but maybe before we start that, maybe to step back a little bit, and because a lot of our listeners maybe are not really familiar with the political system in the European Union, and especially with the anti-corruption efforts that all of these or, or many of these institutions were are working on. So could you give us a little bit of an overview of what the different institutions in the EU do in the fight against corruption? Maybe maybe to take one step even further back. Um, I mean, when, when I was at TI looking from the outside at the EU institutions, one of the things that struck me is that if you look at the evolution of the European Union over the last 20, 30 years, um, particularly the, the transition of countries from the, the Soviet bloc that then joined the European Union in 2004, 2007 or, or after, um, my, my impression was always that in this transition period, uh, in the accession to the European Union, we have seen some of the biggest uh, 
progress ever made on this planet by countries in terms of building up democratic institutions, uh, functioning judiciary, anti-corruption uh, mechanisms, and, and also fighting fighting corruption, right? Um, so when the European Union wants and uses its its political pressure and economic pressure right, it can be a fantastic tool in the fight against corruption. But what we also see is that the way that the EU works, that once you're in, this this pressure works very differently because basically, well, the European Union has quite a lot of money, right? Um, at, at the moment, I think the annual budget were at around about 160 billion euros that uh, that we're handing out every, every year. That's that's a sizable chunk of money, of course, but it's it's actually only in a very small fraction of that the European Union or the EU institutions, well, mostly the executive, the European Commission, handing out this money directly. The the lion's share of this money is actually handed back to member states, and they then spend this money. So, for example, uh, there is a program uh, to to renovate bridges. Let's say uh, then the the European Commission would give a certain amount to a country like Italy. And Italy then uh, holds tenders and then people can apply who wants to renovate which bridge and then they pay out the money. But so basically, if in these EU funded projects, if there is corruption issues, um, then it's firstly the responsibility of that member state to make sure there, there is no corruption, that those tendering processes function well. And if ever someone finds in a given project that there is corruption, uh, well, the European Union can sort of do a preliminary check and see if it finds something. Uh, but but any kind of prosecution or investigation would have to be done by the by the national um, by the national bodies. And and the problem with that is well, as long as the national judiciary and the uh, the, the rule of law in a country works well this this system works well right and that was always the idea we make sure in the accession to the european union that all this is is functioning we do a whole list of tick boxes okay yes in in this given country uh, the rule of law is functioning they're fighting corruption and so on uh, but once they're in we we no longer check in a way and and if if uh, these mechanisms then on the ground collapse the eu has actually so far relatively little that it can do to force member states to make sure that uh, that corruption on a given project is investigated. So that kind of leads us to the debate or to the, the ne negotiations that you're currently in about the rule of law. And much of the focus, at least in the, um, in the public eye, has been on Hungary and Poland, for example, because these countries are being heavily criticized for uh, letting go of, of um, rule of law especially Hungary with Viktor Orban has been a, like a very high-profile example for that. Can you tell us a little bit about the status quo on Hungary, for example? Basically, Viktor Orban is now in power for, for 10 years. Um, the first thing he did uh, when he came into power is that he changed the constitution and wrote it to the preamble that he wants, well, that Hungary now is an illiberal democracy, right? And since then, I, we, we have very systematically seen steps that that he has taken over not not only the political system but but all the institutions he he has taken over the judiciary filled the courts with with judges that rule in his favor he has uh, sometimes through intermediaries taken over the media uh, successively um, there there is in a way not not much independent media 
left in, in, in Hungary. And we see that the last remaining bits are, are heavily under pressure. I was just uh, in Hungary a week and a half ago and visited basically the last free radio station, which is called Club Radio. Um, and they are about to lose their frequency early next uh, next year if there isn't a miracle happening um, and basically if you live outside of budapest uh, at this point uh, radio television newspapers everything is in the control of um, of the circle of victor orban so so people unless they go online and read in in other languages there's basically no no independent media uh, left in the country and my assessment is that, that Viktor Orban and his close friends and family are basically using this situation to, to personally enrich themselves. And not just a little bit, but they're, they're stealing uh, at least to the tune of a billion euros a, a year. So they have set up a system where they're not just, you know, uh, stealing from, from certain funding lines, but they're looking at each and every funding line that the European Union is providing infrastructure, agriculture, Erasmus, uh, student exchange grants, whatever. And they are using this money, well, one, to personally enrich themselves, and but also to stabilize their own power in in the country. So they they know they have a certain amount of money, for example, for, for infrastructure investments. So they are deciding who who gets to win those contracts. So they have they, they pre-agree which company in, in which part of the country is going to win uh, a, a certain contract. And then they uh, get a kickback from from that company for. So, well, they get the business, but then the, the, the politician uh, that handed out the contract is, is getting a certain percentage back from that. And they do that on, on pretty much every funding line uh, that that exists and and that's sort of the state and we we do have sort of parts of these problems in 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 other member states but to this degree where where it's so consolidated and so systematic in in the approach uh, i don't think that that any any other member states is 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 this far down the road yeah, you just mentioned uh, the eroding levels of media freedom in Hungary, but also in Poland or in Bulgaria. And for me, especially as a, as a scholar of political communication, this is a topic that's very close to my heart. And from the research that is out there, we know that media freedom and well-functioning investigative journalists can contribute substantially to curbing corruption, primarily by creating transparency, accountability, but also as a general, general deterrent, for example. So what I was wondering, what is the EU doing against it? Or is there something that, that the EU institutions can do? I mean, if, if we take a very concrete case, uh, so the son-in-law of, of Viktor Orban, right? Um, he, he started winning a lot of public contracts to provide LED street lighting to Hungarian cities, right? And there, there were some journalists that, that uncovered this and, and brought it to, to public attention that, hey, this is happening. This is the son of law of, uh, of, of Viktor Orban. He's winning millions in, in contracts. And well, in, in this case, then, we, we have a, an organization in the EU that's called OLAF. It's the, um, it's the anti-fraud office of, of the European Union. So they got alerted um, on, on this case, started looking into it, put together a file and said, okay, yeah, this, uh, the, the, 
this is illegal what's uh, what's happening there and we don't want him to get any any eu money then this file was handed over to to the hungarian prosecutor and they didn't didn't agree and basically the the trick that in this case hungary used is that they said okay uh, then don't reimburse us eu on on this project but pay pay the money out for this other one so that's one of the the, the core problems that we have is that even if we manage to identify concrete cases of corruption, which is already difficult if media is so stifled and if the investigative institutions on the ground no, no longer cooperate, really. But in this case, then the member state can simply say, um, you know, they always submit certain projects that they want reimbursed from from the European Union, right, or partly reimbursed. Um, but what Hungary and what many other member states actually do is that if they know, okay, we get a certain amount of money from the union for, for certain projects, we oversubscribe that amount of money. So instead of saying, okay, I get 5 billion from the EU, I'm going to hand out projects worth 5.5 billion or 6 billion or something. And then if with any of the projects in this pile, the EU finds a problem, we just say, okay, don't reimburse this. We have the next one here, right, for you. Um, and and then the the, the project uh, in in this case of of Orbán's son-in-law then doesn't get paid out by EU money, but then gets paid out by money from the Hungarian taxpayer. But in a way, it all comes from one big pot, anyway. So they just shuffle the the projects around. They never lose any money. So it's really an idiot save system uh, for for people that want to steal from this because even in the case that you get caught you're not punished you're not losing any of the money uh, and since you have such a stronghold on the hungarian parliament and there is no free media in hungary hungarian citizens will never notice that in this case now they're stealing from hungarian citizens instead of or hungarian taxpayers instead of eu taxpayers and I mean that's that that's a horrible situation to to be in. As you just mentioned, that they cannot be really sanctioned. I'm curious about why that is the case. I mean, I know that in the European treaties there are mechanisms to sanction uh, member states that that do not comply. But in the reality, it often looks a lot different, and they don't really have negative effects to assume. So why are these sanctioning mechanisms not working? The main tool that we have at our disposal when, when the rule of law in a country collapses is something that's called uh, Article 7 in, in the treaties of the European Union. So basically, if, uh, if the fundamental values, uh, including the rule of law, uh, are, are broken in a member state, then there is a process that at the end of a long process, you could withdraw voting rights of the member state in, in, in the council. That's sort of the the harshest sanction at our disposal. But in order to achieve that, you basically need a unanimous vote of all the other member states. So in the case of Hungary, you would need a situation of 26 against one uh, for that ever to materialize. And an Article 7 procedure um, was actually first launched against Poland uh, a couple of years ago. And then we as the European Parliament forced that there would be an Article 7 procedure also against Hungary. But both those countries early on basically said that they would cover each other uh, and that they wouldn't allow uh, either of the other one to, to be sanctioned. So basically this, this procedure is dead 
um, and and we can't do anything about it. But there are more tools that the that the European Commission would have at its disposal, but um, hasn't fully made use of. Uh, there is, of course, the the possibility for the European Commission to to sue the member states. And every once in a while, they do sue on uh, on stuff. I don't think they're doing it enough. But the big problem with taking member states to court, again, let me give you an example of the Central universe, uh, European University. So George Soros founded and funded university in, in Budapest has been uh, you know, Orban has hated this university for, for, for a long time. Uh, funnily enough, he, he got a grant from George Soros to study in, in Oxford, uh, uh, a couple of decades ago. But since then, he, uh, at some point really started hating Soros, uh, because he critiques his, uh, his, his style of government and his corruption. So he wanted to, to get rid of that university in, in Budapest. Um, he made a law. Just targeting this university uh, and and got them out of the country. Right, the the university moved to 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 Vienna, and then the European Commission said, okay, this law is illegal. They took it to to the European Court of Justice, and just a couple of weeks ago, they they won the case, uh, and the court said, okay, this this law indeed was was illegal. Uh, or Orban has to take it back. Um, he he lost, but. The damage is done. The university is gone. Uh, George Soros has said that he is not going back. And th- this is a dynamic that we often see on, on many other cases. They are basically creating facts on the ground. And even if two, three years later, we're winning the court case, well, the university is gone or the, uh, the radio is, uh, is bankrupt in the meantime. Uh, the people are gone, whatever. And, and, and he is creating all these facts. So just relying on the courts is just not a, enough in, 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 in this case. And we need something that works quicker uh, and, and, and more efficiently. And that is well why we're discussing now this, this, this rule of law mechanism. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get something at the end that, that is fully functional. And that's basically because Corona came, came in. We, we thought when, when this was suggested two years ago, um, that the moment to force Hungary and Poland to accept this mechanism would be at the moment when we negotiate the, the budget. Every seven years, the EU decides on how much money it's going to spend over the next seven year cycle. So this is the, the maximum amount of pressure. Poland and Hungary are the biggest recipients uh, of EU money. Poland in absolute terms, Hungary on a per capita basis. So the thinking was, well, they need this money the most so we can sort of force them to accept uh, this this rule of law sanctions mechanism uh, otherwise we'll just say okay then uh, you don't then, then we block the budget and you're not getting any of the money you're needing it the most uh, so they they would give in but this logic has been changed by corona because all of a sudden with the economic crisis that we see in particularly italy spain uh, to some degree france portugal uh, c- countries that have been most severely hit by the economic uh, crisis following uh, Corona, all of a sudden they need the money more. Uh, they need EU money to uh, to spend against the the, the economic downturn. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, Orban has very quickly understood this logic and has said, well, if if you introduce a functioning rule of law mechanism, I'm going to block this whole Corona package, 
uh, and and then you're not getting getting any of the money. And uh, so he's basically blackmailing uh, the the member states um, that that are most touched by 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 Corona. You've laid out very well uh, what the problems are of the EU right now. What are your proposals um, to fix these? How do you think would uh, a functioning rule of law mechanism look like? I mean, I, I think it needs a whole arsenal uh, of, of things. There's, there's not this one silver bullet uh, that, that solves this. But I, I think there's a number of things that, that the European Union can do. Well, one is obviously to get such a sanctions mechanism, right? One that actually works in reality. Uh, this partly depends on, on political will, uh, but where member states are, are actually willing to, to ensure that when there is when there is deficiencies, when there is breaches of the rule of law in a given member state, that, that they actually act, that they sanction the member state until they comply again uh, with these rules. The second thing uh, that I would mention, and, and for, for most of the EU countries, this is actually coming, but not for Hungary and Poland, is the European public prosecutor. Um, this is a 20-year-long debate, um, but we, we are creating a European prosecutor um, where actually she, she is going to take up uh, her work in, in, the, in the next couple of months or so. We, we don't know the exact moment yet, but this is coming reasonably soon. Uh, Hungary and Poland haven't signed up to this, but um, there is 22 of, of the other member states uh, that, that have. So with the exception of, of Hungary and Poland and then Ireland, Sweden and Denmark, uh, all member states are, are covered by this. So for the first time, we will actually uh, have European prosecutors that are allowed to investigate and, and prosecute um, corruption cases against the EU budget uh, by themselves. So we're no longer relying by, on, on the national prosecutors, but there's EU prosecutors that have the same rights uh, that can take these cases to law. And I think that can actually be a real game changer. So, so one thing to, to Put pressure on, of course, is that in in the future Hungary and Poland also uh, join the, the the European prosecutor. But so far, for obvious reasons, they they have refused this uh, because uh, well, they're they're just afraid uh, that it might actually work and, and and do something about this. Next point I would mention is that the European Commission can can obviously make better use of the existing tools, right? Sue. Uh, member states, uh, when whenever they break EU law, uh, they already have the power actually to cut funding when they have suspicion uh, that uh, that anti-corruption mechanism uh, aren't aren't working, that there's rampant fraud and, and so on. So so with with a change of political will, they can actually do more uh, on that. And finally, I would say they can also spend money better uh, to to help rule of law to help uh, the, the fight against corruption by su supporting independent or in the investigative journalism. Uh, they, they can uh, make sure that there is good information available. One thing that they started doing now with this, uh, they, they are doing now an annual report on, on the state of, of rule of law. I think that can be a good tool uh, if you if you use it well, uh, but providing basically good good data and, and good information on, on the situation in, in member states uh, can 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 really help on this. Unfortunately, we're seeing that in the current uh, budget negotiations, one of the funding lines uh, that is called rights and values is is being cut, and that's precisely the kind of budget line 
uh, that supports NGOs in those countries and um, and and supports them in in the fight uh, for equal rights for uh, fight against corruption and so on. Well, that looks like like progress at least when you when you talk about the the prosecutor's office. Uh, let's see how that how that turns out. I would like to go back a little bit to something that you addressed at the beginning of the interview, but also in your most recent speech in the EU plenary, and it's about the conditionality of, of EU funds. So it looks like that paying out these funds to the member states should be conditional upon some sort of anti-corruption efforts or rule of law compliance or good governance in general. So what my question is, like how... How would you measure it? How who is to to say this one country is sufficiently good governed and promotes sufficiently uh, good integrity within the government and the other country is not? Like, what would be the indicators for that? I mean, the the institution having to do that assessment is is the European Commission, right? Uh, it's it's the it's the executive. It's we call it the guardian of the treaties. So so that's their job uh, to protect. Uh, that the the fundamental values of the European Union are are respected, and one thing that they just did is is do this this rule of law report. So in a way, they they already did this assessment in in which member states uh, is is the state of the rule of law uh, at at what level? Do we have an issue? Do we not have an issue? And and what they based this on is is four four criteria. Uh, that for them make out whether rule of law is functioning in a member state or not. First one is is the independence of of the judiciary. So looking into uh, are are the mechanisms working well and and can judges actually rule independently? Are uh, prosecutors um, influenced politically or or not? Um, those those are things that you can look into. Second aspect that they had uh, is is the fight against corruption. Uh, and there they look at the um, at the existing indicators from organizations such as Greco, but also um, Transparency International, um, the the assessments that that are done there. I think uh, there there's also things that are being done, for example, by the Venice Commission, uh, assessing EU member states and, and and making recommendations on what could be improved. Third criteria is is the independence of of media. And, and there you can look into, you know, how concentrated is, is the media market, how diverse is ownership, um, are they actually acting independently, how, how heavy is the political influence on, on uh, publicly, on, on public um, media and so on. And then the, f the fourth and last criteria is, um, is, is checks and balances, so to speak, so the, the, the institutional separation of power and, and so on, how, how well that works. And the Commission actually managed with, as I said, uh, looking at what Greco has done, looking at what the Venice Commission has done, uh, independent uh, information uh, provided through uh, civil society, uh, academia, and so on, and, and then put this together in a, in a report. To, to some degree, at the end, the assessment will remain with a hint of uh, of politics in there, right? Do you judge this uh, as now having uh, having crossed some sort of threshold? And I would expect, um, I mean, particularly if we're talking about Hungary and Poland, if this regulation enters into force, um, I, I think Poland and Hungary are going to take it to the court 
to to have it checked, and particularly if a concrete case is brought against those two countries for for a sanction, it will end up in court. So the final judge on on this question is the rule of law or not will will ultimately be the European Court of Justice uh, that that will have to tranche uh, that that question because I can just not imagine uh, that that a member state, uh, particularly those two, would just accept. Uh, the 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 ruling of the of the European Commission. So you mentioned earlier that political will is important um, in this whole negotiation around the rule of law. Right now, you are uh, as the Parliament are negotiating with the European Council as the representatives of the member states, and Germany is holding the pres presidency. As the Parliament has a huge majority that wants to push for this rule of law mechanism. What are the member states doing? I mean, obviously, we know that, that Hungary and Poland uh, are trying to uh, block this or trying to water it down. Um, what do you think about Germany? What is Germany doing? My assessment is, is basically that um, for, for Orban, this has always been personal. As I said, he, he personally, his own family, his sort of caretakers, his childhood friends that, uh, that are managing his money in a way for him, um, They, they are personally profiting so much from, from this EU money that for him, this is really a personal thing. Uh, if, if this mechanism ever worked, if they, if we managed to, to recoup this money, uh, it's, it's his personal loss in a, in a way, right? So he has been fighting very hard since the very beginning to, to water this down, to block it, to delay it. Uh, and, and he has been reasonably successful in, in this, uh, despite him just representing one, uh, well, if you put it positively, a mid-sized EU member state, right? Um, and, and I think the, the German presidency in, in negotiating this so far has basically been giving in way, way too much into him. They, they, and the representatives, the ambassador, others have, have repeatedly told me that they have been trying To, to get a compromise that, that Hungary signs onto at the end. So they have been moving ever, ever more in, in his direction. And at the end of the day, he will not vote in, in favor of this. And he hasn't done so far. I mean, on the, on the negotiating mandate, Hungary and Poland voted, voted against the, the negotiation mandate. But the, the damage in, in terms of further watering it down, uh, was done. And we see that even now, um, There is actually very concrete language, for example, on something that I call the Orban loop. Uh, the council calls the emergency break, where if a sanction is, is proposed by the commission, um, the, the council can actually send it to the European Council, so to the heads of state and government that usually they, they have no role in legislation or in the implementation of legislation. They are just there to give the grand directions uh, of, of, of Europe, right? So, but Orban explicitly introduced Uh, this this emergency break that would send any sanctions decision back to to the heads of state and government so that he uh, can can decide on this as well because all decisions in the European uh, Council are taken then unanimously and he sits at the table and, and can say no uh, I, I don't think there, there should be a sanction on this and this this emergency break is is in 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 the compromise that's currently on the table and uh, german ambassador says well there there's very close coordination between orban and merkel on on these 
on 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 these points and the, the the pressure is constantly there so it feels like in these negotiations that although he is he's not there and he he is never mentioned by name actually but it feels like orban is sitting in the room and uh, and and shaping these negotiations and that the that the german government is allowing that and that they have been tolerating the the well, what has been happening since ten years now in 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 Hungary, I think, is is one of the bigger political mistakes that uh, that, that the German government has made. Um, and I think there's there's two very concrete things that I would mention. Well, one is that one of the biggest at at the time the biggest independent uh, online news media the the it was called Origo at the time, uh, was was owned by Deutsche Telekom. So big German telecoms company that is actually uh, part owned, almost one third owned by, by the German government. So they have a blocking minority, but they still allowed that this biggest online newspaper was sold uh, to to a close ally of, of Orban and has since become uh, a government uh propaganda machine, uh, basically. And um, the other thing that I would mention is that, well, Viktor Orban and also his his Fidesz members of the European Parliament are still part of the European People's Party. So so the big house of, of European conservatives that Angela Merkel is, uh, is, is a member of and that, that many, many of the heads of state uh, and governments are, are, are a member of, and they have been tolerating him there for years, there, were, there was a, an attempt at some point to to maybe kick them out, uh, but they they still haven't. Uh, members of Fidesz continue to hold important office uh, in the European Parliament. They continue to negotiate in important files uh, for for the European Parliament, and so th- th- that's also something that not only Orbán, others uh, do do this very similarly. They they basically sell at home that that look. I'm I'm the close ally of of Merkel and Macron. Uh, they they accept me as as one of their peer, and I'm sort of for you as Hungarian citizens. I'm uh, I'm ensuring that that the money keeps flowing, and uh, you know uh, I'm 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 doing this for you. And I I don't understand why why we tolerate this. I don't understand why the German government tolerates this, and I also don't understand how the German conservatives, uh, the party of Angela Merkel, have been tolerating this now for 10 years, uh, that this is happening right under their nose and within their own party family. Yeah, this is actually a very uh, personal question that I would like to follow up with. Like, How is it for you personally to deal with these people on a day-to-day basis in the European Parliament? I mean, uh, when you know that the Fidesz party is uh, breaking rule of law and undermining media freedom and in, in their own country like but you have to deal with them in all these committees in some way how do you how do you deal with this personally yeah, there's a, actually the, the the most bizarre situation is that um, the, the European Parliament has this special power a bit like uh, the the US Senate that after the elections when we're deciding on the new executive so when we're when we're deciding on the new european commissioners they they all get to audition in front of the european parliament and and we as parliament decide is someone uh, suited to to be a commissioner in in this portfolio or not so when the the new european commission uh, was was suggested um i actually 
you know, contacted all my old colleagues from Transparency International, some investigative journalists uh, and, and people, and, and I asked them, who are all these people? And do any of them have corruption or integrity issues, any ongoing court cases, whatever you can tell me, right? And I put together a file of, of the biggest ethics problems, so to speak, on, on this new commission and then went out, uh, went to the media, uh, talked a lot with colleagues to ask these questions uh, during during those hearings and actually brought down three of the commissioners that came in for, for corruption issues, uh, including the Hungarian commissioner. He used to be the, the justice minister uh, in, in, in Hungary. And, um, you know, I, I, I found that there was a number also of personal conflicts of interest. He has a law firm. Uh, he's actually presenting Hungary in front of the European Court of Justice um, and, you know, found that this person is utterly unsuited uh, to, to be part of the European executive uh, in the European Commission. So brought him down. Uh, he was rejected as, as European commissioner. Uh, and, and Hungary then nominated someone else. But this is, he, he sits with me in committee. Uh, I'm, uh, we're colleagues in the, in the Constitutional Affairs Committee. Um, I'm not sure he's fully aware, uh, that, you know, how, how this all worked, worked out and, and who was really behind that, or if he knows who, who I am. I, I, I don't know, but it is bizarre at times, uh, to, to have these people around. Uh, but obviously there's, there's a lot of politicians uh, in, in this parliament with, with crazy ideas from, from Nazis to, uh, to whatever. Uh, so and, and unfortunately, the Fidesz MEPs are, are not alone. And they're in, in some things, they're not even the worst uh, that, that we have in this house. So uh, you you somehow learn to live with it. Uh, normally, these kind of people are, are not the ones that actually show up for work. They're, they're not the ones that, that do the nitty gritty work on amendments, on, on actual uh, legislation. Uh, at best, they, they sort of show up and use the, use the plenary as their theater to, to shoot a YouTube video of, of, of their speech uh, that they then show to, to their home constituency. Um, so so I, I don't have to hang out too much with these people, fortunately. Well, thank you for this uh, for this insight. I think it's good to hear that um, the democratic power works, though, and these people are then voted out or not voted into uh, the commission posts. So that's that's a good thing that that's working in the in the parliament. We are kind of running out of time now. We could have talked with you about a lot of other topics um, like lobbyism, uh, the revolving door issues. Thank, but thank you very much for your time. I think we spend it well. Um, for like our last questions, we would just like you um, to ask, maybe uh, you have like an interesting read for people out there that are interested in, in anti-corruption. Maybe you have like a podcast that you listen to or a book that you recently read or just any kind of of recommendation um well one one thing i i could recommend a, a book that i've recently uh, read i discovered it late uh but uh is is red notice from from bill browder who who has basically taken an interesting approach to the fight against corruption as a as a sort of activist in investor and you know coming from an ngo background and now in politics, I, I found it 
interesting at least to see that there, that there is a very different approach to 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 the fight against corruption um, from from the money side um, not not that I support everything uh, in in his approach and obviously there's a, a big element of you know personal richness uh, in, in in the motivation behind this but but nevertheless it uh, I, I think it's 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 interesting to see what other people in the same universe but at a very different location uh, are, are doing and uh, I, I find that inspiring every once in a while to to read their story and uh, to to learn a thing or two from from what they're doing thank you very much Daniel thanks Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Daniel's work, check out the show notes of this episode. We also link some recently published newspaper articles on the rule of law mechanism, of course. We are also very interested in hearing your opinion on the topic. Should EU funding be tied to a country's commitment to the rule of law? Leave us a comment on social media or write us directly. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We also post much corruption-related content there, so if you haven't already, make sure to click the follow button soon. We would also appreciate it if you could use your own social media to post about Kickback and to recommend us to your friends. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music from Kaihan Golka. That's it for now. Have a nice week.